Thank you, team. Beautiful reminders in that hymn. Good morning to all of you here with us in the building today and those who have joined with us today online. We're glad you're here worshiping with us today at Calvary Monument Bible Church. Uh Uh-oh. Well, that's trouble. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) We're going to get to that in a minute. I want to thank you all for uh, the many of you that shared with us the opportunity uh, to enjoy some authentic Haitian cuisine. And of course, a few weeks ago, uh, up in, I guess it was Farmersville Road. Anybody familiar with Farmersville Road up Garden Spot area? Some of you have your hands up. You're familiar. There's a little Mennonite church up there. Well, it's not so little. It's actually a bigger Mennonite church, New Covenant uh, Mennonite church. We went up and we enjoyed as part of their missions conference, I believe, authentic Haitian cuisine. Now, you have to understand that since our boys came home, they have not had authentic Haitian cuisine. Cuisine. And so we made the trek up, and I have some pictures uh, of, the, uh, of the final result of what took place in the gymnasium as the food was served. They were very, very excited to be eating authentic Haitian cuisine. And, and so you see Stanley there, he has uh, just chicken, but it was a Haitian flavor on it. And of course, what they call uh, banan pizze, um, kind of like uh, it's, it's a plantain. Kind of like a potato, though. It's not very sweet. And so there's some other silly pictures of uh, them eating Haitian food. And indeed, at the end of the night, everyone was happy with that Haitian meal. Now, as we enjoyed this meal together, a debate broke out at the table. And it was a very uh, important debate, one in which every child and myself at the table would want to make sure that we landed on the right side of the debate. And the question was posed by one of the children, and I cannot remember who at the time, but the question was this, whose rice and beans are better? (laughs) Moms or these? (laughs) Now, every smart child at the table and the smart husband at the table immediately responded, moms, rice and beans are way better than these rice and beans. However, there were some Haitians at the table that uh, maybe slightly disagreed. Not all of the Haitians, however, disagreed. Some of them were smart and knew the one who feeds them every day uh, needed to remain pleased. And so they uh, said moms. But we do enjoy rice and beans in our house. And it's interesting, some of the things that we debate and discuss and sometimes even divide over in our day-to-day lives. I remember this in college as well in my undergrad. I had been raised in brethren and Methodist faith communities. And then I went from those communities to training at a Baptist school. And as you might imagine, I recognized many differences In the faith communities that I grew up in, a a lot of men had beards. And these were the more, what what many would consider big, beautiful beards pointed to spiritual refinement and spiritual maturity. Well, all of a sudden at a Baptist college, beards were weird. You weren't allowed to have a beard. Everyone had to shave every day. And, And, you know, the make and the model of the car that you drove was very, very important. And I didn't grow up in environments where that was important. And Dressing up, dressing up in vogue again. And that was not a thing in the faith communities that I had grown up in. And as you might imagine, at a training center for ministry, such as Clark Summit University, 
the dormitory discussions are a little bit different than at many other schools and universities. So our evenings were full of debates and dialogues and arguments and even the occasional angry outburst among students over various theological positions and viewpoints. And you'd have different groups of students, as you might imagine, that would align themselves with this professor or that professor or this author or that author. And there were divisions over which professor had the best or the most coherent understanding of whatever particular doctrine was the point of debate that evening. Little did I know, what I was experiencing in college at that time was a microcosm of what I would later experience in pastoral ministry. And as the waters of division settle among us, we most often come to find that our propensity to divide is evidence of our immaturity as believers. Let me say that again. Our propensity to divide is evidence of our immaturity as believers. How can we grow in a greater love for God and each other when division and strife and jealousy divide our faith communities? How can we love, live, and lead for God's glory when we are focused on and distracted by our own internal strife rather than the world that God has called us to reach with the gospel? In our text today, Paul is going to identify, he's going to call out, he's even going to rebuke the division that characterized the people of God in Corinth. And in this rather assertive and bold portion of Paul's letter, he will make a strong and direct correlation between jealousy, strife, division, and the corporate church's spiritual infancy. Paul's going to expose the selfish ways of division, and then he's going to move to show a more healthy and productive way that the people of God should relate to their Christian servant leaders. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 today. You want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 9. And before we do, we're going to pray. And I need to let you know that we need to be in prayer for Nicole. She is being taken right now to urgent care as we speak. And so we're going to pray for Nicole Davis. Uh, she is not feeling well and having severe pain. And that's why uh, Pastor Jim has left uh, along with his girls to go uh, with Nicole to urgent care. So let's pray as we enter into God's word. Lord, we come before you today and we don't know the details of the situation regarding what is going on with Nicole right now, but we certainly pray, Lord, that she would know your presence, that she would know your comfort, and that she would know your peace in these moments. We pray that as Karen and Pastor Jim and the girls uh, go to urgent care, that you would provide care from doctors that would be able to diagnose exactly what's going on with Nicole inside her body, that they would give clear communication to Pastor Jim and to Karen, and that they would know how to care for and to help Nicole right now in this time of need. Lord, we lift her before you. And now, Father, we come together as we normally do and we gather around this text of Scripture. And Lord, we are here for such a short time on this earth. 
Your word tells us that our lives here are but a vapor. And how we spend our, our moments here, Lord, are so important. Father, as Paul addressed the church in Corinth, and as he'll address us today as we sit around this living and active, very relevant word, we don't have time to be divided. We serve Jesus, the greatest treasure that all of us hold in common. And Lord, we must find a way as a church in the world, as a church in America, and as the church here in Paradise, Pennsylvania, to move forward together in unity with our minds and our hearts fixed on Christ. Lord, let us not divide over things that are non-essential. But let us find our great hope and great treasure and be motivated by it to love those that you've placed in our lives that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. As we open our text today, Paul has the corporate church in focus here. Later, in chapter 6, he's going to speak to individuals, but here, the whole body of Christ is in view. For those of you who are note takers or underliners, take a look at how many times Paul uses the word you in just the first four verses of this text. Eight times. This along with other words like brothers, people, infants, humans. The idea is that the yous that appear eight times are plural. It would be like when a coach addresses his team before competition. He stands before his team and he says something that may sound like, you need to get ready to go out there and compete and overcome this adversity. Now, the you that he's talking about could apply to every individual player on the team. But he's intending to communicate the message to the team as an entire unit. 
And that is what Paul is doing here. One observation we might make is that Paul is, as a shepherd, he's keenly aware of the condition of his people. Their condition is not foreign to him. In verse 1, he reminds them that while he was with them, he was unable to address them as spiritual people. But instead, he had to address them as infants, people of the flesh. And this comment would have been very unsettling to the people of God in Corinth. They would have wanted to be perceived as very wise and among the mature in the faith. The ones as Paul has described previously in chapter 2. Yet this spiritual maturity eluded them. This was not a defining characteristic of the people of God in Corinth. It wasn't a defining characteristic when Paul was among them. And here, three to five years later, as Paul is writing back to them, they are still missing the mark. Paul is not writing to a congregation that's mature in the faith. Many scholars believe that Paul is actually responding here to specific criticism that was directed towards the content of his teaching when he was publicly present with the people. There's a belief that the people of God in Corinth were not happy with the depth of Paul's teaching. They wanted Paul to share with them the quote-unquote deep things related to the faith, but rather when Paul was physically with them, he was spoon-feeding them the basic truths of Christianity. And this could be why Paul had affirmed earlier that he was not with them with plausible words, but rather with a simple, singular message, Christ and him crucified. And friends, we who will sometimes see ourselves as mature, as sometimes seeing ourselves ready for meat, often we find that we are not quite there yet. Paul knew better. He saw the realities that encompassed the church he was serving. The people of God in Corinth were not focused on Christ. Rather, as we see in the first four verses of the text, they're focused on themselves. So look at what he says in verse 2. I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. The question we might ask is why? Why were the people not yet ready for solid food? What were the characteristics that Paul would identify that showed that the people of God were not yet ready for solid food? He gives the answer to these questions in verse 3. And verse 4, look at verse 3. For you are still of the flesh. Now what is it about the people of God in Corinth that Paul identifies or recognizes as in the flesh? What are some of the most presently alarming and destructive ways that the flesh manifests itself still within the body of Christ Today, look at verse 3 again. For while there is jealousy 
strife. And that word strife can be defined as unproductive quarreling that divides people. That's how that word can be defined. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Church, is there jealousy, strife, and division in the church today? Does the church in America today have jealousy, strife, and division in it? Does the church in Paradise PA today have jealousy, strife, and division within it? Indeed. I believe if we are honest, we have to answer yes. In fact, there are some who are writing today for a number of different uh, outlets that would say that they never remember a time in their life where the church has had more division, more jealousy, and more strife than right now. And Paul says that jealousy, strife, division, bickering, quarreling, this is the human way, not the spiritual way. Our jealousy and our strife create division within the body, and Paul is addressing it, and he's saying this is wrong. Paul is identifying the problem. And the problem wasn't that the people of God in Corinth needed deeper teaching or needed more knowledge. A lack of knowledge is not what was creating the problem. If it wasn't a lack of knowledge, Paul would have continued to teach them until they had enough of it. But friends, what we will come to find is that lack of knowledge is often not the problem for the church in America. Rather, it's lack of applying what we already know to be true. We live in a wealthy and prosperous country where we have been given all that we need in Christ to remain undivided. But rather than embrace it, we hold on to these human or selfish ways. Church, we've seen this as we started this book in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The way of Christ is love. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's love that is free from jealousy. And I would also say free from strife. And this way of love is freely available to us to apply in our lives and not just our lives, but the lives of those who the Lord has placed around us. Yet often we choose the way of the flesh, the way of division, the way of jealousy, the way of strife. Now, Paul's going to move here in verse four to show us specifically how jealousy and unstrife were unfolding among the people of God in Corinth. Look at verse 4. How does jealousy and strife unveil itself among the people of God? The answer is in verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now, for the sake of the text today, I believe we have to put this in modern vernacular. I believe we do. One might say, I like Andy Stanley. Another says, I like John Piper. 
One says, I follow John MacArthur. Another, I like Tim Keller. One might say, Tony Evans, he's my guy. Another, Bobby Bauckham. One might say, Beth Moore. Another, Nancy Lee DeMoss. Paul is saying, knock it off. Knock it off. Why do we do this? All of these individuals would say they love Jesus. All of these individuals would agree on the essentials of the faith that are defined in statements like the Apostles' Creed. Jealousy and strife manifest themselves in our body through church pettiness and choosing sides on issues outside of the essential matters related to Christ. Paul has already addressed earlier in this letter that we have far more in common in Christ than we have uncommon among one another. Yet where do we most often focus our energy and our eyes? Now, I don't know about you, friends, but I would say when, when I meet a person for the first time in my life, if I focus in that initial meeting on the things that we don't have in common, most likely that relationship's not going to go any further than that first encounter. There will be no real relationship there. But if I focus on the things I have in common with that person, a relationship can begin to form. And many of us would agree that the strongest relationships in our lives are often formed around commonality. And church, we have the greatest treasure in the world in common, in Jesus Christ. There is no greater treasure to have in common. And so here we have Paul, and here we have Apollos for the church in Corinth. Their approaches to ministry were very different. They were indeed considered in two very different camps among the people of God in Corinth. Paul and Apollos had divergent views and perspectives. Their styles were different. Their influences were different. Their words were different. So here's a question that emerges that Paul is going to soon address. How do we relate to ministry leaders who have different perspectives and approaches? How do we relate to our spiritual leaders in general? How should ministry leaders see themselves? And how should we as the church view ministry leaders? Friends, pastors, ministry leaders, authors, church leaders... They are to be seen and related to as servants. These are not individuals we pledge our allegiance to or even derive our theology or philosophy of ministry from. Rather, Paul is soon going to show us that ministry leaders are servants of the Lord. They're tending to the garden of God, his church. They're caring for the Lord's flock 
as shepherds. So to alleviate the strife that had taken root and grown among the people of God in Corinth, Paul is now going to move to show how the community of faith is to rightly relate to the servant leaders who are ministering among them. How are we to do this? Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? What then is Chris Lenhart? What then is Jim Davis? What then is Bob Reed? What then is Tom Hubbard? What then are our elders? What then is our ministry directors? The word that comes next says it all, friends. We are servants. I love that Paul describes his profession here as a servant. Often when we are getting to know other people, we like to ask them what they do because whether it's right or wrong, we like to attach a person's identity and value to that person, often based off of what their profession is. And imagine if we answered everyone who asked us this question, what do you do? How many times have you got asked that question? What do you do? Imagine if we answered that question with, I'm a servant. What do you do? I'm a servant. What do you think the next question would be? Who do you serve? You want to talk about a lead into a spiritual conversation? Right there it is. How do I have a spiritual conversation with somebody? Tell them you're a servant. Because they're going to want to know who you're serving. A servant of who? I serve the Lord. And those whom he draws into my pathway each day. Is there a way I could serve you or pray for you today? Wow. There it is. You know, some, sometimes people come and say, I, I want to know, how, how can I talk to somebody about Jesus? Oftentimes, if you just start with serving. How can I serve you today? How can I pray for you today? One of my mentors, every single time I go out to eat with him, one of the things that he always does is he stops the way and always asks them before a meal. He says, we're about to pray to bless our meal. How can I pray for you today? You know, in all the times I've been out to eat with him over the years, never once has someone said, I don't want you to pray for me. No one's ever said that. Oh, the doors of ministry that are unlocked when we begin with ourselves as servants. If we're starting from a Christian worldview, there's no greater function of leadership than that of a servant. Within a Christian worldview, then, there is no more effective form of leadership than servant leadership. Now, we say here at Calvary Monument Bible Church that our mission is to love, live, and lead for God's glory. We could very well say synonymously that we are loving, living, and serving for God's glory. From a Christian perspective, the two should mean the same and go hand in hand. 
One way that this works at Calvary Monument Bible Church is that I am here to serve the elders who have been appointed by our congregation. As a shepherd of CNBC, I see one of my primary functions then to serve our elders and serve the staff so that together we can effectively help you serve one another. I am a servant. That's what I do. That's my profession. That's my career. Literally. A servant. And as we do this, friends, as we live with this posture towards one another, in one another's lives, I hope that we find that together we are growing in our love for the Lord and our love for each other. As we serve one another, we find God does the work of growth. Sometimes the Lord calls us as servants to care for someone who already believes. But other times, as in the case of Paul and Apollos in our text, they were servants through whom some had come to believe. And so whether someone grows in their faith through our ministry or comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus through our ministry, we recognize, as Paul did, that we are only the conduits through whom God works. Take a look at the end of verse 5. As the Lord assigned to each. As the Lord had assigned. Paul understood that if anyone came to believe through his ministry... Apollos' ministry, or anyone else's ministry, that it was as the Lord had assigned. Paul is helping the people to see that both he and Apollos are servants. And he's detaching the people from their unhealthy allegiance to either one. An unhealthy allegiance to Paul, or an unhealthy allegiance to Apollos. We are our servants. And though their assignments were different, each one had been given their ministry from the Lord. And friends, this follows Paul's teaching to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Beforehand. That we should walk in them. And this is what Paul and Apollos were doing. Friends, this is what we do. And take a look at the works. The good works that God had prepared for them look different. Look down at verse 6. Their works were not the same. What does Paul say? I planted. The predominant ministry of Paul was planting. But what did Apollos do? His ministry was different. He watered. But who gave the growth? Who's it say? God. God gives the growth. And it's important to note here that neither Paul nor Apollos was more important than the other. Both were necessary, but they were not the same. They were equal partners in ministry. With different tasks. Look what else that Paul does in verse 6 though. He's also endeavoring 
to show the people of God who gets the credit for the ministry growth. It wasn't to be Paul. Wow, look at that ministry that Paul did. That's amazing. It wasn't to be Apollos. It wasn't like they were calling each other on the cell phones and saying, yo, how many people got saved at your rally last night? I had 40. Paul's saying, oh, well, hey, I had 65. Sorry. It's not that... Maybe that's how the people saw it. Maybe that was going on amongst the people. That's not how they were supposed to be. They were servants. God brought the growth. And as we saw last week, Paul is heavily influenced by his understanding of the Old Testament. And this should not surprise us. He was a student of Gamaliel. Paul was an expert in the law. He would have known the writings of the prophets very thoroughly. And last week it was Isaiah chapter 40, and here Paul is leaning on an illustration that's found in Isaiah chapter 41. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. God brings the growth. He does it. Verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who brings the growth. And somebody, I think John Marsh said it up here so eloquently earlier today, if there is any good in me, give glory to Jesus, because he's doing it. I'm a servant. A servant doesn't get the glory. Who gets the glory? The master. That's how it works. The church should be, as Isaiah proclaims in chapter 61, verse 3, called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. But, there's always something after a but, isn't there? But, that does not let the servant of God or the minister Off the proverbial hook. Don't mistake me. That doesn't mean that we get to say, well, God's just doing it all, so we don't got to do anything. There are some that might say that. I've been around some. Oh, don't, 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 don't worry about that. That's not what Paul's saying. We can't just say, oh, we'll just do whatever we want. God will bring the growth. Or, well, We don't really have to do anything. God's just in control of all of it. That's not Paul's intention here. The way of the servant is to serve the people. And serving the people, friends, requires labor. It requires work. And friends, how many of you would agree that people work is sometimes the hardest kind of work? People work is hard. It's laborious. Friends, we're not easy to get along with. Nor do we easily get along with each other all the time. Paul's addressing that. This is hard work. We're going to get dirty. Sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable. We have to make decisions regarding which pastures the sheep are going to graze in. Or which direction the sheep will go. 
We have to consider how we might encourage and challenge and train and correct and care for all the sheep. And even the sheep who are not yet part of the pasture. Paul's using an illustration related to farming here. We know a little bit about farming in our community, don't we? Farming's hard work. How many farmers in here can do nothing and expect to produce a crop? (laughs) If you raise your hand, you're going to be the most popular person in the auditorium today. I can tell you. (laughs) If you've figured out a way to do nothing and produce a crop, everyone's going to want to come and talk to you. On the other side of that, how many farmers can just do whatever they want in their fields and expect to produce a bountiful crop? Just willy-nilly it. Throw a few seeds over here, a few over here, put some over here, smush some dirt around. Now let the Lord do it. Walk away. Doesn't work that way, right? There's got to be some intentionality behind it, some thoughtfulness, some care. But even still, watch how Paul is going to address the difference in God's economy. This is amazing. God's economy is not a modern, western, or even capitalistic economy. God's economy is not based on how much a person produces. We value productivity in our economy. We really do. But rather, look at verse 8 at what Paul says the Lord's economy depends on. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his, what? Labor. Not production. Labor. Labor is the measuring stick of God's economy. And so it is, friends, within the church, throughout the world, We have fields that yield little fruit, and we have fields that yield much fruit. And we should not surmise that the physical size of a ministry, numbers, is testimony of its effectiveness. We should not surmise that. God's economy labors or rewards a person's labor, not their production, for all Production comes from God. So let's, let's bring this verse down onto our playing field and unpack it a bit. I've heard it said about particular pastors or ministry leaders, well, why wouldn't you want to follow that guy's example? Look at the size of his ministry and all that he's produced. Look at all the books he's written and all the things that he's done. We should do what that church over there is doing. Look at how many people are coming to that building over there. Numbers tickle our fancy. Now, I want to suggest today that what Paul is saying in this text is that the ministry of the faithful community pastor who has served his congregation and community over the course of his tenure and may only pastor a church of 50 to 100 people in number is just as powerfully effective and used of God in his ministry to his people as the man pastoring 5,000. And perhaps 
the one pastoring 50 to 150 may be even more effective because the people he serves, loves, and cares for over the course of his ministry will grow as he nourishes them with the word, bathes them in prayer, and lives among them in proximity. Numbers are not the only indicator of ministry success and effectiveness. And while they may be one indicator to consider, the text reminds that the wages of God's economy are given according to labor because it is God who is sovereign and in full control over the production. Regarding physical numbers in buildings, not every large ministry is necessarily healthy and effective. We see that, friends, as Mega church after mega church after mega church suffers with leadership failures. We see it. And not every small ministry is necessarily unhealthy or ineffective. And that's something that we need to come to grips with. We love numbers. I love numbers. I'm not good at math, but I like to look at numbers. I mean, I, I don't know what to do with them a lot of times. I rely on my wife to help me with that. Or Pastor Jim. He's good with numbers. How might our lives look in light of these realities? And I'm sure as you sat here today, for every single one of you, and I think this is the beauty of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of God's Word, every single one of you as you sit here today are thinking of some point in your life, maybe even some point recently in your life, where you could apply the principles that Paul addresses in his text today. But friends, what I see, and I think what Paul understood, is that the best servants focus on the words of their master. The best servants focus on the words of their master. And our master has given us powerful words to live by. And I have, over the years, heard many pastors, many Christian business owners, many ministry leaders, many executive directors of Christian nonprofits and the like be driven silly over physical numbers. How can we get more people in the building? How can we get more people in the pews? How can we get more people in the business? How can we get more people at the ministry? I just wish more people came. I just hope our company would be able to reach more people. I was, I was hoping that this or that ministry that we were developing would draw more attendees. I was hoping more people would sign up or more would participate and take part. Paul is saying that the good servants work hard in the fields where God has placed them. Focusing on the ground that he has given them to till. Caring for the plants that he has given them to sow and or water. We're to see ourselves, as Paul so eloquently states in verse 9, God's fellow workers. Servants of God and God's fellow workers. 
We trust in his economy as we work hard, loving those God draws into our pathways. We're reminded that God's economy rewards labor above production. This keeps the focus off of ourselves and onto the people that he's called us to serve. And when we recognize or when we see growth, either spiritually or sometimes, yes, physically in numbers, then God receives the credit and the glory for only God brings the increase. And we've been asking this gigantic question that kind of hovers over this entire letter that Paul wrote. How can we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as the body of Christ in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? And again, I would remind you to notice how in verses 1 to 4, Paul uses words such as you, human, infants, brothers, and flesh so often. Then in verses 5 to 9, the emphasis switches completely onto servants, laborers, and the work of God. The human way, friends, is self-elevating. It's filled with jealousy, strife, division, and disunity. It's a way that's void of love as God has commanded. It props humans up on pedestals and pits one servant against another. It's saturated in comparison and by its very nature, it's divisive. The servant way is different. The focus then is on our common position as servants. Friends, we are co Laborers, together, working hard in the ministry that God has assigned to each of us, giving God the glory as he brings increase that he has predetermined in each of our lives. I would suggest this this morning as our team comes to lead us in a final number. If we want to be effective ministers of Christ in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world, we must give up our jealousy our strife, and our division, and we must pursue serving one another in love, giving God the glory for what he accomplishes in and through us. We are servants first to God, then to one another. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a comparison culture. Culture that can be defined by division, by loyalty to one person or the next. And yet, we are called to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And we need your help. Perhaps there is no greater, more relevant area for the church in America, for the church in our community, for our own local church to focus on than in this portion of Scripture. We need to keep our eyes on you. Lord, we need to trust that as your servants, servants to you and servants to one another, that you are working in the fields which you have planted us in. And you are bringing to us every day the exact particular people who you desire for us to serve. And our prayer, Lord, as we go and as we contemplate these things throughout this day and throughout this week is that our minds would be tuned to our place as servants. Servants first to you, then to one another. And help us, Lord, relate to our leaders in a healthy way. 
a way that places them in the very position that we are as well. Co-laborers, servants together, working in the principles of your kingdom for your glory in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray these things. Amen.